Hello and welcome to another episode of The Open Floor. I'm Ben Golliver. You know, Andrew Sharp's triumphant return is right around the corner, but it's not here quite yet. So this week I have a really fun tribute episode. Now, Andrew and I have always wondered for months, why are there so many hardcore basketball fans in Australia? We just get email after email from down under. So to answer questions about that community, how it came to existence, why they're so locked into hoops down there when they have so many other sports to kind of follow, I decided to call the foremost expert in Australian NBA basketball fans. That's none other than Lee Ellis. Now, Lee Ellis is one of the panelists on The Starters on NBA TV. He was on the podcast formerly known as The Basketball Jones with guys like Skeets, Taz, Trey Kirby, Matt, JD. I'm sure you guys are familiar with those guys. Lee is going to explain sort of his path to covering the NBA here in the United States from Australia. He's going to talk about what it's like back home, uh, why are there so many fans down there, and just give us the ins and outs of kind of his journey to the NBA it's a really fun conversation. Hey guys, if you have any questions uh, for us during this offseason, I know it's kind of the dead time of year, go ahead and email them to openfloormail at gmail.com. Again, openfloormail at gmail.com. I appreciate all the questions I have received here in the last week or two. Also, don't forget five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lee Ellis of NBA TV's The Starters. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Lee. Thanks very much for having me, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, My pleasure. Hey, so we always get this question here at the open floor for people about, like, how do we get into basketball, right? And when I answer that question... I think back to, you know, being a kid and I grew up in Portland, Oregon, you know, there's a basketball team there. They were pretty good at the time. There's some sneaker companies nearby. Uh, you know, it was kind of right in the middle of Michael Jordan's heyday dream team. And, uh, you know, my dad grew up playing basketball and, you know, he went to Michigan state at the same time magic was there. So he loved it. It was kind of a natural kind of hand me down generational type thing. I was totally immersed in the sport as a kid. And then I'm wondering, you know, I've followed you for years and years, and I just think of all those different factors I just mentioned, so many of them are probably different for a guy like yourself growing up in Australia. I mean, how do you even get into basketball or NBA basketball specifically as a kid? And was that your first sports love or was it was it something you just sort of discovered out of the blue? Well, I guess uh, I guess it all starts with me. I'm, I'm the third of three boys and um, my dad and mum were very active. You know, they played a lot of sports at home, you know, tennis and, and basketball and things like that. And so pretty much from as early as I can remember, um, I used to go up to the local basketball stadium with my brothers and my dad and, and watch them play and you know, when, you, when you're young, you know, like sort of say before you're 10 years old, you go up there and you learn to be the scorer, in fact, and you sort of learn how to score and you watch how the games are played and how things work. And, uh, you know, it was sort of naturally, it just sort of came to me that because we sort of did that all together as, as a family a lot, that uh, basketball just sort of w- was always in my in my sort of life. And so I was intrigued from it from the start. I mean, we played in Australia, we play everything growing up, you know, it, it's that, that's our sort of claim to fame, I guess, you know, in, 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 the, in the world is that we want to be uh, athletes and we want to be, uh, con- you know, contribute to the sports world. And so we try every sport, you know, cricket and tennis and golf and swimming and, you know, Aussie rules football and rugby and all those sports. And for me, um, you know, I played all those growing up as a kid, but basketball was the one that really stood out to me for, for whatever reason. I just really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed the competition. And I think that, um, you know, as I as I started playing competition basketball when I was probably nine or ten years old, we knew about the NBA in Australia back then. This is in the late 80s. You know, we knew about Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Dr. J, but there was no access to it because there was obviously no internet and there was no cable TV. So really getting highlights of the NBA was really, really tough. So 
you know, there was all that, always that intrigue. And, um, you know, for, I, I always wanted to find out a way to try to watch a game or to just get a little bit of coverage. And um, the, the big the big moment in my life, really, um, and, and I'm sure fans who have followed the, the Basketball Jones and the starters as well know that the 1987 All-Star game was the, the first game that I got on, on VHS. My brother, my oldest brother, Nick, came home from school one day and he had this uh, copy of this, of this All-Star game. And so we were like, all right, put it on and let's watch it. And, and uh, that was really an amazing moment for me because I was watching this game and it was an incredible game. And it wasn't just one or two players. Like it wasn't just, say, the Lakers versus, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks or something like that. It was all the stars at the time playing together in what was an incredible game. And, and for anyone who doesn't know the story, you know, that game goes to overtime and Rolando Blackman hits these two free throws that sends the game to overtime with no time left and the West goes on to win it. And that really was the first time that I, I, I thought, right, I've got to try to get more access to the NBA. And so from there, I went to uh, my local news agent uh, and, and you know, asked them, say, do you have any basketball magazines? And they sort of had one or two. And then I used to just get kept going in there to harass them and say, look, do you have any more of these NBA magazines? And, and they, used to, they used to actually uh, save them for me at the back. And I used to go to the back of the news agent and say, you know, Lee Ellis, do you have any NBA magazines? And they're like, oh, yes, Lee, here you are. And you know, these were only probably like three or four dollars uh, in U.S. currency, but with the exchange rate and just the shipping fees and getting it to Australia, I was spending, you know, maybe eight or nine dollars on a magazine, which was all my pocket money <laughs> at the time. But uh, I just, I just consumed everything I could. And then there's another story as well. A good friend of mine, his dad worked at uh, Qantas Airways, and um, he was sort of involved in the cleaning and the maintenance of airplanes. And when the planes would come in from uh, America. They would have the USA Today on it, and uh, and so he would always get the USA Today and bring it in for me. And crazily me, I don't know why I did it at the time, I, I paid my friend to get the USA Today because it had all the box scores and little bits of information about the NBA on it. And uh, and I just wanted everything I could, and I'd read these box scores, and I'd read the little you know one, one sentence or one paragraph on a game and just consume it all. And uh, I remember I told my dad one day, because he gave me some pocket money and it was gone the next day, and he said, you know, what happened to your pocket money? And, uh, and I said, I... I, I paid Tomo for the uh, USA Today newspaper. And he's like, what are you wasting your money doing that for? <laughs> and I didn't have a good reason, but uh, but it's one of those stories that I like to sort of tell now because I think, in, you know, considering the career path that I've chosen and where I am right now, it, it paid off, you know, because uh, some of those things that I, I remember reading and seeing at the time um, are somehow relevant to what I do now. So, you know, for me, it, it just... Um, I was just passionate very early on about basketball. I loved playing. I loved watching it. And the NBL, the Australian League, was quite big in the late 80s and early 90s. It's not quite so big now. But, um, you know, so basketball was, was was very much a big part of my life early on. And, um, you know, then as I sort of grew and, and as, as I grew up and, and, you know, things like the internet and cable TV became more of a factor, it allowed me to at least uh, watch things a little bit closer. And, and you know, so I started... And, and also in the late 80s in Australia, they, um, they started playing one game a week. And it was like it was on Friday night at like midnight. And so I used to set the DVR and... Uh, oh, DVR, God, where am I where I'm talking about? The VHS at the time and tape all those games. And, and I'd watch them over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, that was all I had access to as far as watching games at the time. But, but I used to just watch them, you know, as, as often as I could. And... Um, you know, it was a, it was a really incredible moment because I know that a lot of a lot of basketball fans in Australia were just dying to get some NBA coverage, and when we finally got it, people were just rejoicing. Even if it was, like I say, one game that may have been three or four weeks um, delayed as far as when it was actually played, 
but we didn't care. We just wanted to watch it, and uh, and it was great. And you know, the first the first season that we got was the um, 88-89 season, and, uh, and and anyone who remembers the 1989 playoffs, they were an incredible playoffs. Obviously, you had Jordan uh, and the Bulls going all the way uh, to the Eastern Conference Finals, and Jordan had the shot in the first round against Cleveland. Then they upset the Knicks in the second round, and then they they were actually leading the Pistons. Uh, 2-1 at one stage in that series before losing in six. And then in the West, you had the Lakers, uh, who swept all the way through to the uh, NBA Finals and then got swept themselves by the Pistons. And uh, there was just some really incredible moments in that playoff series. And I, I remember, um, you know, a, a specific game, in fact, it was the Lakers and the Sonics uh, game four of the uh, Western Conference uh, semifinals. And the Sonics were up 29 points in the second quarter, and it was an incredible game. And then the Lakers came back and and won that game, and ended up sweeping the series. And uh, I've still got that game on tape at home somewhere. And it was uh, it was it was just you know for me, I watched these games over and over and over again, and, and I started to accumulate a lot more knowledge about the league and the game and the players. And uh, you know from there, it, things just took off for me. No, that's amazing. I mean, you came right in for the golden era, I think, of what people would think of the late 80s with, you know, Jordan's first cresting and some of those, you know, memories that we're still watching on highlight reels today. Uh, I'm curious, though, like when you were first going to that gym, I mean, how many people are at that gym? Is it thousands of fans watching these local games? Is it a very small community? And then like once you're starting to get these box scores and you're picking up these magazines and you're kind of making those investments like you're talking about and how it would pay off for you career wise, like 30 years later, I mean, do you have fans at, you know, fellow friends at school you can talk to about this stuff? Or are you like the one guy in the class who's, you know, decked out in, you know, probably like starter jackets and, and uh, NBA gear and, and just everybody's kind of looking at like, what are you even talking about? I mean, was there really a community at that point in Australia uh, or not yet? Yeah, no, there, there was a community, but I, I probably was the nerdiest out of a lot of them because, uh, <laughs> you know, people were interested in things. You know, people were interested certainly in seeing the highlights of Jordan and, and Magic and, and everyone like that, Larry Bird. But I was the one who was like digging into like who's 12th man on the roster and you know what, what's this guy going to be doing. And uh, you know, when, whenever whenever people would talk about Michael Jordan, uh, you know, I would almost try to test them and say, well, you know Michael Jordan, but do you know Brad Sellers as well for the Chicago Bulls. You know what he's doing and you know how tall he is and what number he wears and all that sort of stuff. And um, the, the town I grew up in, Sunbury, uh, in the late 80s, it was approximately about 30,000 people. So it was a fairly small community, but it was a very social community as well. And so when you would go to the basketball stadium, it was kind of a social interaction as well. And, and so you would have like um, adults would play Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and then it would be more for the uh, kids. And, and under 18s and below on basically a Friday night and a Saturday afternoon. So there was sort of, I would probably spend, you know, maybe two or three nights a week at the basketball stadium, you know, either watching my dad or my brothers play and then playing myself on weekends. And then as I as I sort of turned to become a teenager, like 13 or 14, then you start playing in some of the lower leagues with the, with the older men who are kind of retiring at the end of their careers, you know, in their sort of 50s as you get to learn to play with the men. And then, you know, as, as you progress, you start to play with, you know, uh, really good players when you're in your sort of late teens, early 20s. So the competition was really good. And, you know, you got to make some great friendships with some people and there was some pretty good rivalries as well between the teams. So there was, there was definitely, um, you know, basketball was very passionate in, in, in Sunbury, but uh, I don't really remember too many people sort of being able to go uh, in, into depth about statistics or sort of, you know, rare players. Like if I threw a Liddell Eccles out there, not a whole lot of people would have known uh, who I was talking about. But, um, you know, for me, that was sort of uh, that was sort of what drove me as well, is I, I just wanted to know everything I could about the whole league. 
and um, you know, if anyone wanted to talk to me about the NBA, I was happy to sort of share my information and knowledge with them. Although it didn't sort of last too long, those conversations when people <laughs> when I started getting too deep into it, and uh, people just really wanted to hear about Jordan and Isaiah Thomas, and you know, uh, all, all the sort of. Uh, the sort of more marketable names and players, but uh, yeah, no. You know, like, what, what you're describing is is similar to like us here in the United States with soccer. You know, I mean, I remember in like the mid '90s when the video games first started. You know, we start to get really introduced. Like casual fans would get introduced to some of the biggest stars, and you might know five players, but you wouldn't know, you know, the the seventh most important player on Brazil or Argentina, for example. Right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fascinating. So when you're growing up in that basketball community, I mean, you're kind of contemporaneous with, you know, maybe guys like Andrew Bogut and, and Patty Mills and some of this generation of guys. Could you, I mean, now you look back on it, could you foresee those guys being able to come up through that Australian basketball system and playing on the NBA level? Or did that seem kind of impossible for, you know, a lot of guys? I mean, there's quite a few uh, Australian players in the league right now. Uh, when you look back on that time, like the late 80s, early 90s, Australia's basketball community, did it seem like it was going to be able to produce NBA-quality players in volume? I mean, obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I know that the, um, the the level of athleticism and, and, and athletic ability of guys that I played basketball with, and not just basketball, but Aussie rules football and cricket and tennis and all those sports, there were definitely some guys who stood out a lot more than others. And, and again, because people... Uh, so passionately I'm not all that surprised to see so many guys now trickling through the NBA and, and I mean I say trickling through but of course you know you've, you've had Andrew Bogut and Ben Simmons both number one picks and technically you can throw Kyrie Irving in there as number one pick he was born in Melbourne but he wasn't technically an Australian as far as uh, you know he sort of went through the Australian schooling system and things like that but um, you know I remember because I, I played high school basketball and I was like you know probably ninth or tenth guy on the roster we had a really good team and we made the all all state finals twice and uh, we didn't we came runner up both times and when I look back at those times I mean you know there was some really good basketball competition for for, for young guys growing up so to me now to see like say Ben Simmons being the number one pick last year Dante Exum a couple of years ago he was number five pick by the Jazz and obviously Delavadova, Mills and Bogut and those guys you talk about. I'm not that surprised. I, I think the only problem is with Australian basketball is if you're really good at basketball, you're not going to play in the local, in the NBL league. You you're obviously have your sights set primarily on, on the NBA. But then if failing that, you want to go somewhere in Europe or even China because those leagues are just bigger and they pay more money. So the Australian league itself is not a not a great platform in that respect because I think in, in what you're getting now is a lot more guys who can't make it in other leagues who are falling back to Australia because Australia just doesn't have the money to compete with Europe or other leagues around the world that can offer bigger contracts. So, you know, I know that uh, the league has gone through some uh, changes a lot over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, but um, still at that grassroots level, at the, at the school kids level, uh, a lot of guys now who follow the NBA because it's not like it was for me where I couldn't see games every week or anything like that. They, these guys now can watch games. They watch the NBA League Pass and they watch. They get the live feed of basically any uh, national TV broadcast in Australia. So kids are growing up on NBA basketball in Australia and they see like the impact Steph Curry's had over the last couple of years and every kid now wants to be a Steph Curry. <laughs> it's funny, one of my friends I was talking to not too long ago, you know, he, he's got two boys... Uh, they're you know sort of early teenagers, um, and he was saying that all the kids now in Australia, 
think they're Steph Curry. You know, they, they want to shoot from, you know, five feet behind the three-point line. You know, whereas when I grew up, everyone tried to dunk like Michael Jordan, but obviously, you know, not many people could do that. But, but Steph Curry has changed the way that guys oh, yeah. how the game is played now. And they, and they actually feel like, you know, I can actually do this because you don't need to be six foot six like Jordan was to be, and, and to be able to jump as high as you can. You only need to be able to shoot the ball. And so, you know, Steph Curry's uh, having an, an incredible impact on, on, on basketball all around the world. I'm sure, you know, oh. you can go to any country and there's going to be kids wearing the Steph Curry jerseys. But uh, that's certainly having a, a big impact in Australia. Totally. I mean, it's all those kids that are aggravating Mark Jackson, right? I mean, like, scoot in. You, you don't need to shoot from 35 feet. I mean, he went off about that uh, a couple years ago during a broadcast. Hey, a couple other touchstone events I wanted to, to ask you about. Uh, can you reflect on the importance of, like, the Dream Team? Because we always hear how important that is around the, the globe. And then also maybe weigh that against like the Sydney Olympics. Cause I imagine that was probably a pretty big moment for Australian basketball as well. And then some of the players you mentioned getting drafted recently, I know they had, they're kind of like second generation guys, right? Like their dads were professional athletes, uh, either, you know, Americans who lived in uh, Australia and competed in the Australian basketball league, uh, or they, you know, they just happened to be over there. Uh, you know, Kind of timeline-wise, I mean, how important do you think it is for some of these guys to just have been raised sort of in basketball families, almost like NBA basketball families as expats, and then those uh, those Olympic events? I mean, I know you, you got introduced to the NBA a few years before the Dream Team by that 1987 All-Star game, but uh, do you remember people kind of like crowding around TVs and watching the, the 92 Olympics? And, and also just in 2000 when you're hosting it, I imagine that was like a big basketball party. Yeah, well, definitely 92 was a huge moment because a lot of, you know, the, I think the Dream Team were probably the first real, you know, rock star type team at an Olympic Games. I mean, I know that in the past we've had Carl Lewis and, you know, guys who have stood out to be, you know, fantastic at their particular event. But the Dream Team was this whole class of not just like good guys, but Hall of Fame guys, legends except for Christian Leighton, of course, but, you know, no, no disrespect to him, but compared to those other guys, you know, the David Robinsons, the Scotty Pippins, the Jordan and Magic, I mean, these are some of the most famous players you've seen of all time. But it, it was interesting because I, I taped every single game and I, even the, um, the, the warm-up games that the U.S. had over here against uh, Cuba, and I, I can't remember exactly who they were now, but I wanted to consume everything because, for me, that was my golden ticket. It was like all these players basically playing an all-star game every single time they're going out in the Olympics. And, uh, you know, it was going to be great. But in some ways, I, I kind of got annoyed because a lot of people were saying, oh, gee, this guy, uh, Clyde Drexler, is pretty good. And this guy, Chris Mullen, he can really shoot the ball. And I'm like, yeah, I've been telling you guys about these guys for the last couple of years, and you're only just starting to realize. And so it sort of it, it annoyed me that, that a lot of people, their first real exposure to guys outside of those big names like Larry and Michael and, and and uh, you know Magic Johnson, and they were really seeing how good these other guys were as well. And and so it was it was uh, it was fun, but I was also like I felt in some ways validated that I'd been uh, you know talking about the NBA for so long and, and finally seeing some results. Yeah, you're the original you're the original Australian NBA hipster, Lee. I mean, clearly you're just uh, you know you were the early adopter, right? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It was kind of like, yeah, now now everyone wants to be an NBA fan and I've been on, I've been, you know, following it for the last five or six years. But uh you know, in, in two thousand actually I wasn't in Australia uh, for Sydney. I was actually living in England at the time, but I, I followed it closely and uh I know that obviously after the Dream Team of ninety two, you know, the the expectations were much bigger on, on the US because everyone sort of wanted to see uh 
if they could sort of replicate the dominance and the power of that and the grace of that 92 team. But there were also a couple of moments, I think, following it, like the sort of 94 team and then the 96 Olympic team and and, and, uh, Atlanta here that kind of upset a few um, basketball fans as well because there weren't quite the same grace and elegance of that 92 dream team there was a bit more of a sort of loud mouth you know you got guys like Gary Payton there who's obviously you know that's what he's known for being a talker and I think that sort of turned off a few people as well from that team I didn't I don't think they uh, the fans were as endeared as much to those following teams uh, after the dream team because it just they just seemed to be a little bit more brash and a little bit more arrogant and obviously they went out and crushed everyone anyway but they just didn't do it in the same style as the original so there was a, a little bit of a feeling I think that you know people appreciated the skills and the athleticism of the players and obviously you know guys like Vince with that incredible dunk over Freddie Vice was was a, it was a sort of landmark moment but I don't think um, fans were quite as uh, just just enamoured by the the following dream teams um, you know I think I think things have turned a little bit again now I think you know fans just really Really love to see who, which, which sort of uh, group of players the uh, Americans going to send. But I think if you go back, I think everyone's still going to have a little bit of more uh, sentimental value just to that dream team because it, just because of where it came from and the, and the legends on that list that you know they they were some of the greatest players of all time in, in, in NBA history and, and they're all sort of playing together at once and they they did it all as we expected them to do it as well. You know, pretty much crushed everyone. And, um, you know, Charles Barkley, obviously, he was a bit of a lightning rod there. But I think at the time it was uh, it was still charming, you know. And um, I don't think it was quite the same uh, for, for a couple of dream teams after that. But for sure. I mean, they, 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 point, they, they, they kind of know, set like an impossible standard, right? I mean, I, everything after the 92 team is like you're never going to be able to keep up with them on or off the court when you don't have peak MJ and you don't have the newness factor. And like you're saying, I mean, when you're – you know, maybe getting into some, uh, you know, off-court trash talk and, and all that stuff. I mean, it's always a little bit different. I, th- I do think they did turn a little bit, I think, in the international eyes to sort of being villains almost or, or kind of maybe even bullies, maybe, you know, would be a way to put it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, like I say, guys like, like Gary Payton, if you follow the NBA, you knew exactly what you were getting out of a guy like him. You know, he loved to talk trash and loved to get into his opponent's face, but it, I think the 92 team just didn't need to do that. And that's what I think people sort of more liked about them. They played in a in a more gentlemanly way, although, you know, the, the, certainly the aggressiveness from, from Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, particularly against Croatia, we know against uh, against Tony Kukoc, they really wanted to make a point against him. But they sort of did it within the confines of the rules and the spirit of the game. There was no sort of... Uh, you know, real headlines in the in the media or anything like that. And and again, Charles Barkley had some comments, and I know that even John Stockton had some comments at the time about not living in, uh, not uh, staying in the Olympic Village. But again, I think it was all new and it was all fresh. And then you know, when they played the game, they played the way they did. People didn't sort of feel like they were, uh, you know, the sort of not, not just not that same cockiness that we saw in you know sort of the later '90s teams. But um, you know, that was also as well, like you mentioned. They had such an incredible high standard that it was very, very difficult whoever came after them to uh, to repeat that sort of performance and to have that same sort of uh, vibe that they gave off, that, that everyone was just sort of in, in love with them. And, um, you know, it, it, things changed a little bit. But uh, but to your other point as well there, um, you know, about uh, seeing, seeing, seeing these guys who have grown up, uh, who I watched in the uh, National Basketball League and the Australian League, and now I'm seeing their sons in the NBA, you know, Dante Exum, Ben Simmons, Jared Utoff, uh, he's also there. 
and there's one more who I just uh, can't think of right now. But uh, Jonah Bolton, that's it from Philadelphia, even though I think uh, he's going to be spending this season overseas. You know, I watched all their dads play, and, and they were all sort of expat Americans who went out and made the Australian League really, really good because they're all very, very good players. And so it's, it's really weird for me to see now their sons have come through and not only been good players, but NBA-quality players. And, and added to that as well, Brett Brown, the, the coach of the 76ers, he spent a lot of years in Australia coaching. He coached under Lindsay Gaze, which even I, I think a lot of uh, American basketball fans will know. Andrew Gaze, of course, is, is maybe Australia's most famous basketball player for his uh, time at Seton Hall in the 89 NCAA uh, championship run that they went on. Uh, Lindsay Gaines is actually in the in, uh, in the Hall of Fame. He was inducted only a couple of years ago. And Brett Brown was an assistant coach under Lindsay. And then Brett Brown went on to coach uh, himself and won a championship in the NBL. So there's just so many connections to uh, the NBL that, that I used to watch and I used to follow. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's really sort of trippy to now look and see that these sons of these players are playing. And, uh, you know, not again, not just filling in rosters, by being the 10th or 11th man, but being, you know, stars on teams. And uh, it, it's just, it's great to see. Hey guys, what's up? Today is an awesome day because I'm holding in my hands a gift pack from none other than Barbasol Shaving Cream. And I can tell you now for a fact that the biggest thing to happen to Barbasol since their shaving cream is also the only thing to happen to Barbasol since their shaving cream. Introducing new Barbasol Razors. The brand America trusts for a close, comfortable shave now has premium disposable razors. Barbasol's close shave technology on every razor means you get an advanced pivoting head and ultra-thin open-flow blades. The Ultra 6 Plus razor also features a seventh blade specifically designed to refine and style tricky areas like under the nose, sideburns, and beard. I gotta say, the Ultra 6 Plus really keeps me clean. Go ahead and visit Barbasol.com and get a $2 savings coupon and see for yourself why Barbasol razors are the number one new disposable razors on the market. You're looking good, America. You're shaving with Barbasol. Check out Barbasol.com for that savings coupon. Let's fast forward to 2017 because you know we're getting these emails from our listeners and they're telling us, hey, we're coming over to the NBA, you know, the USA basically to do like NBA road trips. I mean, they want to hit like you know, five games in two weeks, and they're going to go city to city and see all their favorite players. And you know, we've got other guys who are, you know, they've got fantasy teams, and they're asking us to debate, you know, where we put certain players on our SI top 100 list. And I mean, it's clearly there's a lot of fans who are plugged in. But I'm curious, just for like the American listeners, uh, where does the NBA kind of fit into the sports uh, landscape in Australia right now? I mean, there's you know a lot of other different sports I know that people follow religiously. I mean, the NBA is clearly not number one. Uh, over there, I'm assuming. But where would you say it kind of ranks in terms of you know the other things they've got going on, whether it's you know, Australian rules, football, soccer? I mean, these are sports that are taking place domestically. Uh, where does the NBA fit? And also, how does it compare, I guess, to the Australian League? Would you say there's more basketball fans over there who are NBA fans, or are they, you know, do they associate more with the local teams? No, they're definitely more NBA fans. And again, a lot of it just comes back to the access they have. You know, people can, can watch games, and, you know, on League Pass, you can follow it. And the actual, the funny thing is, uh, given that the games start usually at 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, that's perfect time in Australia for when you're at work. A lot of guys are, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, they turn on their computer and they're streaming an NBA game. So, it's, <laughs> you know, it's not like you have to wake up at 2 in the morning to watch a game or anything like that. Um, so it's perfect. I would say, I mean, look, I don't have obviously any stats, official stats on this, but I would say 
in a, in Australian sporting uh, sort of uh, ranks, I guess you've got Aussie rules and rugby sort of up there as sort of you know joint one and two, and then you've got you know cricket when it's in season as well, and tennis and things like that. But I would say soccer, Premiership soccer, England Premiership soccer is still probably the the most watched uh, international sport. But then I would say basketball is is right next to it, and um, and and I think again, I think that a lot of the Steph Curry factor over the last couple of years has really given uh, basketball a huge boost because. He's just made the game so incredible to watch, and, and and the Warriors as well. I mean, you know, like Clay Thompson as well. The way that the, the way that he shoots and the way that the guys just play the game has just brought a whole new uh, interest to the sport. So I would say, you know, you've got soccer because it's just sort of still the global game, but basketball is right behind it. And I think that even sports like the NFL have probably benefited a little bit from the uh, the growth of basketball, the NBA in Australia, because people then start, you know, when, when there's no basketball on, they start wanting to watch something else. And so football, American football is not a sport that we play in Australia. Not a lot of people uh, follow it that closely, but now they're starting just to watch it and they're just starting to consume it because they have access to it. So, um, you know, I don't think that will sort of overtake um, basketball because people don't play American football in Australia and people play. And the good thing about basketball is, is boys and girls can play it. So it's got that sort of dual interest as well. It's not just a sort of boys sport. It's, it's, it's one for the whole family that they can play. And uh, and now, you know, what we've had over these last couple of years, and you know yourself, Ben, from covering it, like, it's been incredible, like, the, the storylines that we've had and, you know, the, the combats that we've had and seeing LeBron and him coming back from 3-1 last year uh, to win the championship, like, sort of storylines that you can only dream of and uh, and they've been happening. So people people are really starting to take an interest. And, you know, we get a lot of tweets and emails and stuff uh, on, on our show and, I get people from, you know, Adelaide and Tasmania and, and Perth and Queensland all around Australia that say, oh, I'm a huge Minnesota Timberwolves fan and, you know, what can you tell me about the Wolves this year? And I, my first question is always like, how do you become a Timberwolves fan <laughs> growing up there? You know, Exactly. I understand if you're, a, you know, if you're a Warriors fan, you know, or a Bulls fan, you know, from the 90s, Miami Heat, you know, I can understand why guys sort of, uh, you know, and, and, and anybody who follows the league, sort of feels an attraction to one of those teams. But, you know, the Wolves have never really been that close to winning a championship. Maybe in the late KG days, uh, you know, back in 2004, there when they sort of probably got their closest. But, you know, people have been like, oh, man, I've been following them for the last 10 years. And I'm like, man, that's you've done some tough, tough following there, you know. But uh, I think that's it. Like, Australians like to sort of find a team for whatever reason and they just go, right, that's my team and I'm following this guy, these guys you know, through thick and thin and, and hopefully we get to a championship because, you know, again, I, I understand why a lot of people are Bulls fans. In fact, um, Nick Friedell, you know, the ESPN Bulls writer, I was talking to him uh, not too long ago and he was saying he went to Australia a couple of years ago and people recognise him and, and they know him on the street because, because of the impact that Jordan and the Bulls had in the 90s, so many kids grow up being Bulls fans they're still Bulls fans now and so when they see someone like Nick who covers them and does a great job they recognize him and they want to talk to him and you know they've got so many questions about it so um, basketball fans you know sports fans in Australia are very very passionate very very loyal and supportive of of their team and of the league and uh, they just they just want as much information as they can because you know the other thing is you can't really come from Australia to to America for just a long weekend you know if you're going to come you know, as you're talking, some guys are saying, "Look, we're here for two weeks. We want to hit five or six different cities and, and get as much uh, action as we can in as possible because you're only there for a short time. It's such a long flight. 
you want to make sure you make the most of it and uh, and people will spend a lot of money just to uh, just to get the experience of seeing a couple of games yeah the thing you're saying about the super teams like with the Warriors for example I mean that is one thing that you know here domestically I think we do get a lot of backlash like oh it's the same two teams at the finals a couple of years you know eventually people get a little bit tired of it but we shouldn't overlook or underestimate the importance of those greatness, uh, you know, those teams that are sort of historically great, pulling in entire new fan bases, whether it's in Australia, China, other places. I mean, I, I think that is you know, truly important. And your story about, you know, the, the lasting impact of the Bulls totally underscores that and even just the immediate impact of the Warriors as well. Hey, I want to go back a little bit to 2012 because I believe the first time I met you was at uh, the Basketball Jones uh, you know, no season required a tour that you guys did in Portland. And you went city to city uh, during the lockout and kind of spread the gospel about your podcast. And you guys were all based, I believe, in Toronto at that time. Uh, was that right around the same time you realized that you could turn sort of, uh, you know, your your fandom or your love uh, for the NBA into a, a potentially a career? Uh, because that was before you were at NBA TV, I believe. I mean, was that really where it started to feel real? And what do you remember about that cross-country tour? I mean, I imagine that was just a crazy time in your life, not knowing if there was going to be a season, uh, meeting all these fans that had probably followed you on social media for a few years before that. Uh, I mean, just walk me through that whole experience. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go back a little earlier than that because uh, the, the Basketball Jones were working at the score, and, and I wasn't a part of the, the crew back then. I, I was working at the score, which is a, a all-sports TV network in Toronto and sadly no longer exists. They sold out a couple of years ago. But at the time, I was working in the web department, and I was sort of shooting and, and producing and editing my own videos for all sorts of different sports. There was hockey, there was football, there was baseball, there was uh, WWE, there was tennis and everything like that. And I knew about Skeets and Tass, but I didn't know them all that well, but I knew they did a sort of uh, their daily their daily podcast. Um, and so when they joined the score, I was trying to make myself known to them and, and trying to sort of say, hey, listen, I love basketball, and, you know, I could... I could really help you guys out, but they, uh, you know, and, and there was a couple of things that I helped them, um, you know, behind the scenes with, but, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't officially a part of the team. And so ironically enough, I, I went to Australia um, around uh, August or September of 2011. And just after I got back, uh, I, I managed to just sort of stroll past their office one day as I, as I did often. And uh, Matt and JD, the producers, were there, and they, they sort of said to me, "Hey Lee, come on in. We're going to ask you something." And I was like, "Yeah, sure." And they said, uh, what, "What are you doing in the, for the month of November?" And I was like, uh, "I was like, oh, you know, no, nothing, just working." And, and they said, uh, "Well, we, we're uh, we've proposed this uh, basketball tour, this podcast tour around America, and we we basically need an extra pair of hands to help us out with a few things, and uh, we want to offer it to you." And uh, without even thinking, I, I was like. Yeah, sure, I'm in, you know. <laughs> so there's a little bit more to that story. So my wife, uh, Roxana, was actually pregnant with our first child at the time, and she wasn't due until April, so I knew I had a little bit of leeway, but I also I also thought to myself I probably should ask her first, but I also didn't want to give the guys any reason to ask somebody else on that tour uh, because I, I thought whoever they would ask would take it, would snap up the opportunity in two seconds. So It's I a golden guys, ticket. Yeah, 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 I'm in for sure. Yeah. And so uh, when I went home, I said to my wife, we're having dinner, and, uh, you know, I said, uh, you yeah, know, so uh, the guys from the Basketball Jones have, uh, you know, offered me this opportunity to, to do some work with them. And she's like, oh, okay, great. You know, that's what you want. And I said, yeah. And I said, I'm going to be on the road for five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 
there was a little bit of an awkward pause, but but then she was you know totally supportive, and 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 that that's the one thing I have to say. My wife's always been incredibly supportive of everything I've done career wise, and you know she she understood it was going to be a bit of a tough time you know for me being away, but uh, she also knew it was just the the opportunity that really I had been waiting for, and and so. I didn't really know um, exactly what was going to happen on that trip. I don't think anyone really did. And, and, you know, I think Portland was actually our second stop after Chicago. And, and as we as we were moving through the cities, we were sort of figuring it, figuring it out as we were going along. I know that they were doing a podcast, and I, I say they because I wasn't involved in the actual on-air production of the podcast. I was sort of more doing just doing little bits and pieces, whatever needed help getting set up and, and things like that and taking photos and, and just trying to be a bit of a, a general lackey, really, um, and as the as the trip progressed, you know, I sort of tried to do a little bit more and tried to show the guys that I could, uh, you know, shoot some video, produce some videos, and do a little bit of editing. But also, I was a huge basketball fan, and, and you know, I would love to also, uh, you know, have a, have an opinion and have a voice on the show. But I, I was careful to not push it too much and to, to realize, you know, what, what my role was and what they'd invited me to do, rather than you know try to sort of uh, force my way onto the show. And then fortunately, uh, it was around Miami, I think it was around Thanksgiving, when the NBA said uh, they announced that the season would be coming back. And we, we went to New York, and then we went to Boston, and I think uh, I think it was JD and I were in a bar one night having a drink, and I, I sort of casually said to JD that, um, I said, listen, I've really enjoyed this, this, this trip with you guys these last five weeks, and now that the season's uh, coming back, if, you would, if you'd need me to help, I'd love to sort of join you guys full-time, and and JD sort of had a sip of his beer and said, "Okay, you know, we'll uh, we'll have a think about it." And 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 then I think we got back to Toronto, and and uh, a couple of days after we got back, we all sort of went back and saw our wives and friends and girlfriends and all that sort of stuff. And and then they said, "Yeah, we need you." So you know, come come welcome aboard, basically. And I was like, "Oh, this is fantastic." So. You know, that that was really, uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of people complain about the lockout and how bad it was for the NBA, but selfishly for me, the lockout was the best thing that ever happened to me because, uh, you know, it, it really did give me an opportunity. And, um, you know, I uh, and, and I, I like to think that I took made the most of it and I took it, and, and it certainly has uh, helped me to get where I am right now today. And, and, you know, I mean, it's been six years now that we've that I've been working full time. Um, you know, with the basketball Jones and the starters, and uh, that's that's flown by incredibly quickly. But uh, you know, I've enjoyed every moment, and and really, it is just one of those things that sometimes, you know, you just don't know when your opportunity is going to present itself. But uh, when it does, if you can if you can grab it with both hands, then uh, you know you make the most of it, and, and things can turn out really really well. No, I love it. I mean, your story, is, it reminded me of like a Jimmy Butler or like a Wesley Matthews, you know, just a grind until your opportunity comes and then blow up and, and go with it. I love it. Um, I'm wondering now that you're in Atlanta at NBA TV, I mean, you've got the daily TV show, so you're you know, getting recognized by guys all the time. And I know they send you like to the finals and all-star games, summer league, I always see you in Vegas every summer. I mean, what was your welcome to the NBA moment? I mean, was it like the first time you really got to see like Shaq or Charles Barkley as a colleague or was it interviewing somebody on, on the court maybe before a game, you know, somebody you'd respected for a long time? Was it running into a, you know, an NBA legend, you know, behind the scenes somewhere? I mean, do you have that welcome to the NBA moment that like players always talk about, but just do you have it from the media side? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because uh, I, I fortunately was had been interviewing players before we got to NBA TV, I'd been doing it at the Basketball Jones and, and also for the score. So I, I wasn't quite, uh, I, I never sort of had that sort of like, uh-oh, what am I going to do here type of moment. But for me, I guess I guess the real moment was meeting someone like Isaiah Thomas, who 
you know, I grew up, you know, really following the Pistons pretty closely, especially, uh, you know, going back to our, our first conversation, I guess, like Pistons in the 87 and 88, that was when they really became a dominant team. And so Isaiah Thomas was the leader of that team. And being someone who was only six foot or six foot one, he gave hope and encouragement to small guys that you could still make it in the NBA if you if you work hard and you become you know tough and talented and disciplined and and you do all those things that you're supposed to do you may be able to make it to the NBA so you know for me when I actually met him and and talked to him and 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 also this is one of the things you know Skeets always brings up when I talk to these guys you know Isaiah or whoever it is I always talk to them about, you know, something that happened in the 88 or 89 playoffs or 91 or 92 or something, <laughs> whatever sort of makes out. And uh, and these guys, you know, a couple of times I, I know that the guys kind of stop and they're like, oh, yeah, wow, how do you remember that? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I just used to follow basketball. And I think, I think they are a little surprised that a, an Australian guy does know uh, a lot about things that happened in the 80s because I don't think it happened to them all the time. But... Um, you know, now now when I see like Kevin McHale around the office, I just I just really want to go up to him and talk to him about so many different things, and I try to I try to not become too fanboyish about it. But sometimes it's also hard to not talk to these guys because they are colleagues now, and and you know you you just want to ask them questions about their career and moments that happened, you know that that these guys. That, that are famous moments and things that really stood out for me and things that I still remember pretty crystal clear. So I want to go up and talk to the guy who actually experienced it and who it happened to and, and, and see what they say about it. And, uh, you know, so that, that's always, that's always fun for me. And, um, I guess, I guess, I guess in a non-basketball way, one of the funniest sort of, uh, welcome to the NBA TV moments happened when, um, it was just before a show and I went into the bathroom just to sort of check my hair and, you know, knit my shirt up and things like that. And as I came out of the bathroom, there was this gigantic shadow of a man standing over me. And, and you know, no, there was no doubt who it was. It was Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> and because I was coming out of the bathroom and he was waiting to go in, he just looked down at me and said, did you just have a number one or number two? <laughs> <laughs> totally like, I was like, just asked me if I took a dump. Like, what what has my life become? <laughs> and I said to him, I said, no, Shaq, it's fine. I'll just check my hair. You, you can go in there. And he's like, oh, I've got to be careful with these Canadian brothers. And uh, <laughs> like, Shaq thinks I'm Canadian. I haven't bothered to correct him. It's fine. There's worse things he could call me. Uh, you know, Shaq and Charles and Kenny, I think they all just say we're all Canadian because they know that Basketball Jones came from Toronto, even though myself and Trey are the only non-Canadians there. But, uh, you know, again, it's not something that... Uh, even if I did correct Charles and Shaq, I don't think they would remember anyway if I told them I'm actually from Australia and, uh, you know, I'm not from Canada. But, uh, you know, so... Yeah, it, 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 it's crazy that I uh, that I see these guys around now, and, and you know we are colleagues. You know we're not. Uh, it's it's like the Charles Barkley who played on the Dream Team. That guy doesn't exist anymore. It's now Charles Barkley, the broadcaster, and uh, you know he's always entertaining. And and uh, you know Charles will stop and have a chat as well. That that's what I like about these guys is that um, no one really has. Uh, you know, sort of ignored us or or, or even big timed us or anything like that. If we stop and we talk to these guys, you know, they they love to have a chat. And um, you know, especially as I say, I mean, if I see Kenny the Kenny the Jet Smith around and I talk to him about Game One of the '95 uh, Finals where he hit those seven three pointers, he wants to talk all day about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, you're not asking him about a shot that he missed or a turnover that he made that cost him a game. You know, you talk about a, a moment that really stands out for them. 
and those guys are happy to talk about it. So uh, you know, I, I, I like to I like to sort of talk to them about stuff and just see what it was like at the time for them and, and them being in the moment. And um, you know, it's this sort of if I could tell the, the sort of twelve or thirteen year old version of me what was going to happen, you know, twenty or thirty years later. I wouldn't have believed it. So, you know, sometimes I, I like to just go back to being that kid and just asking these these guys about uh, something that happened and, and just seeing what they have to say about it. No, I love it. You're like retroactively building memories that, you know, were impossible for you when you were growing up. That's so cool. Uh, hey, I have kind of a random question for you, but you were mentioning, you know, the lengths that you were going uh, to get uh, the magazines and, and so forth. And I, you know, I lived briefly in Israel when I was in fourth grade and I remember, you know, I brought my basketball card collection over there and I remember showing it to the kids in Israel and it just, they, it lit up like they were bars of gold. Like they had never really seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it. They just wanted to touch them, turn them over. Uh, you know, some of them were, you know, doing what you're describing, you know, reading the stats off the back. And uh, it was almost like it was a foreign language, uh, you know, in addition to being in English, which, you know, wasn't necessarily their first language, but, uh, I'm wondering, was basketball cards, was that a thing in Australia? And then did I hear correctly on one episode where you said you were like mailing stuff to every single team, just trying to like blindly reach out to the PR departments to, to kind of collect memorabilia. I mean, how much of that was, uh, you know, forming your basketball experience when you were a kid? Yeah. Well, that, that's all true. I mean, I got one basketball, um, it was like a preseason, uh, preview, and had all the teams and all the conferences, although it was only four conference, uh, four divisions at the time. Um, and they had on one of the page, they had all the addresses of the team, of every team. And I think there was only actually 20, uh, 26 or 28 teams at the time. And so I remember just thinking, because originally uh, my very first sort of team that I followed was just the Lakers because uh, it goes back to James Worthy in the 87 All-Star game who had 22 points and he was a real star could have been the MVP, but uh, because of the way things happened with Tom Chambers and Rolando Black, I won't go into all the details. But anyway, so I started following the Lakers, and I used to write to the Lakers a lot, and uh, and they were really good. They would always write back and send all sorts of things to me. So that sort of gave me the encouragement to uh, to write to over to other teams, and so I just basically wrote to I would say every team at least once or twice, and just said I'm a big fan from Australia. I love. You know, if it's the New Jersey Nets, it was Buck Williams was my favourite player. And, you know, just hoping that they would respond and send me anything. And so many teams did. And it was so cool because it meant so much to me, even if it was just a little letter, an acknowledgement that just said, we got your letter. Thanks for the support. Here's a, here's a you know, postcard of the team or whatever it was. And I would keep all those things. And um, incredibly, when I moved out of home, Dad kept all those things. So now on That's our awesome. set at, um, at Turner, yeah, on our set at Turner, there are some posters that used to hang on my bedroom wall that are now <laughs> hanging on my workplace. You know, and, you know, things like, like you'll see a lot of Lakers stuff and James Worthy posters and things like that. And uh, there's, in fact, there's two letters um, that I wrote just to the NBA head office. Uh, and I, I just asked them random questions and they wrote back twice. And Dad kept those letters, and now we've got those framed up on the wall as well. And um, you know, so for me, it's uh, it's really cool, and it's something I like to, I do like to show off to people, and I say, you know, this is my, my education for basketball started when I was you know ten or eleven years old, and I feel that it sort of helps me 
be in the position I'm in right now because when I, you know, when we talk about comparing players or eras or whatever, I feel that I have that sort of uh, that that intellectual property, if you like, you know, of, of of following the league from a very young age, and and it and it helps at times now, but it, it also just sort of shows that you know when you were growing up watching it and following it, um, you know how how you've been a part of the league for so long, and so. You know, it's uh, it, 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 I could never have predicted it at the time, but now uh, it, it's crazy that I'm sort of thinking about things that I was thinking about in high school at times and and uh, and relating it. And, and you know, you talk about the uh, opening cards. You know, we do that uh, sort of on our Facebook page once a week during the season. Um, you know, one, usually usually on a Thursday we do it. Um, you know, most Thursdays throughout the season where I just open a packet of old cards from the sort of 80s or 90s or whatever. And, and I, and I just sort of say whatever sort of comes into my mind, and usually it's some some sort of crazy stat or fact that I remember from one of these games or, or from a magazine or whatever. And um, you know, people people seem to enjoy it. <laughs> it's 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 certainly weird. Like I remember the first time we did it was actually in Toronto with Skeeter's idea. He said, you know, why don't we just get a pack of basketball cards and open them and, and see what happens? And and people people loved it. People really seem to respond to it, so uh, we seem to do that, you know, fairly regularly now. We miss it occasionally for whatever reason, but uh, it's one of those things that people still seem to tune in for. And uh, you know, people even write to us and say, you know, can you can you open some more cards? <laughs> wow, this is this is crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I you know I remember as well. Like we basketball cards, I think cost like a, again a dollar fifty US at the time, but by the time they sort of transported them to Australia, they were like four or five dollars a pack and you know, I, I didn't have a lot of money back then, but I managed to scratch scratch together sort of fifteen or twenty bucks, and I'd buy four packs of cards. And you know, that that again didn't think I was uh, using the my money as wisely as I could have been. But uh, for me, it was just all about just get anything I can related to the NBA, and, uh, and 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 it was great. And 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 then on top of that, when teams would send me memorabilia or, or posters or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I would just uh, take that, and, and it would just mean so much to me. And uh, it, it's so it's so funny now when I look back at some of that old stuff that I've got, like uh, from the Knicks or the San Antonio Spurs and stuff. And it's like, wow, these, these you know, all those all that hard work, all those letters, they did pay off. And um, you know, it, it's great that I've still got some of those memories now that I can share with people and, and I, I can show to people. And you know, everyone seems to seems to appreciate and understand that it was like you know this little little kid's dream sort of came to reality and uh, and now I'm working in the industry and uh, I just you know it's it's a it's a it's a trippy experience all right toughest question yet uh I have my answer I want to hear your answer best basketball card set ever what year what company in terms of just your favorite like which one do you think of when you think of like the most nostalgic era uh what's the one that pops to your mind well I, it's probably that skybox era yes. that had the uh, the art the art stuff. I think it's around ninety one or ninety two. Yes, you nailed it. Uh, so my my favorite is ninety one, ninety two. Yeah. It's got the white background, right? Because there's the one before the year before they have yeah. like the gold background. Yeah, and this would have like say you know you know Reggie Miller. He'd have the ball in his hand, but then it'd have like a laser sort of thing coming <laughs> off the ball type. Yes, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, that sort of stuff. That that's probably um, I think that's probably the one that stands out the most to a lot of people because some of the cards in the earlier days were were just like a guy, a photo of a guy, you know, maybe getting dunked on. Some, you know, some, there's been some really weird cards over the years where a guy's like playing defense, and 
it's his card, but you can barely see his face or anything. It's like that's the best they could do for that guy. <laughs> so I think I think when the, the the creative the creative aspect came to those skybox ones, I think people were like, oh man, these, these are awesome, um, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I just I, I like the hoops ones as well. I like the hoops and the upper decks. I mean, the upper decks are legendaries as well. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we we try to mix it up with um, oh, the tops as well. The tops they were great. They're a great set. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's really it's it's funny you know because when we do open cards, it's great when you get a Michael Jordan or a Scottie Pippen. But it's even better when you get a Terry Teagle or someone like that in there. You know, from or a Rod Higgins or a Winston Garland. You know, when you can you can sort of tell a story about uh, you know what whatever you, whatever it is that I remember about that one player. Uh, you know they're always more engaging and fun because everyone knows Jordan and Scotty and, and David Robinson and those guys. So if you can bring a little story uh, out about a guy, one of my favourite ones actually is Michael Cage, the uh, the former Sonics and Clippers sort of power forward, really good rebounder in the late 80s and 90s. And I remember I got him in one card pack and I said uh, Michael Cage. He went 0 for 4 from the free throw line uh, for the Seattle SuperSonics in Game Four against the Lakers in, in the 89 uh, Western Conference semifinals. And I just remember it because I've, I've watched that game a million times. And Michael Cage, he just clunks four free throws. He goes 0 for 4. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit like Rain Man, you know, it just sort of stuck in my brain. And it'll, it'll probably never leave. <laughs> you know what's amazing is I opened up a, a box of 1991-92 Skybox, and they've got this futuristic art, like he's describing the balls on fire, and these there, there's these weird graphics that kind of look like Microsoft Painty that, that they've got going on in the background. And, you know, they really do seem like uh, they're trying to be like 10 years in, in the future uh, at that point, you know, based on the other designs that were going on. But when you open the box now, what's fascinating is how many of the guys are still involved in the league in one form or another. Maybe they're in a front office. Maybe they were a coach or an assistant coach. Maybe they're overseas somewhere. Uh, I mean, it, it really is a reminder that, like you're saying, there, there's on-court memories, but there's also, you know, it's a kind of a reflection now when you look back 20 years, 30 years of how many of these guys are just still around the sport. That's kind of was my takeaway when I opened a a box, you know, not too long ago. It was just like, man, there's like 150 guys in here who are employed by one of these teams, you know, in some capacity. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, you know, like a lot of guys make it into the NBA, but they don't necessarily stick around for all that long, but they still want to stay close to the league. And whether that's an assistant coach or a front office role or or whatever it is in broadcasting, um, you know, it, it, it just shows that like people just still love the game so much and um you know it it, it, it is great it is awesome like we had uh we had fat lever come on to our show this year triple double machine with Russell Westbrook. yeah and, and and you know fat lever was known as the sort of triple double machine himself when he played as a small point guard he's only six or three but a great rebounding guard you know but uh so for me it was like oh i remember fat lever you know he started the 1988 all-star game in chicago he was he was a great player and so you know he was <laughs> it was uh it was always it, you know again I, I see these guys and i'm like wow i wonder if he ever thinks about that game as much as i think about it but uh you know it, it's just it's just great and i know that sometimes even in the office um you know producer matt will say oh you know so-and-so is coming to town should we try to get him on the show and it's a running joke in the office. I'm like, yeah, of course. Let, you know, like, let's 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 get this guy on. I'd love to talk to uh, this guy about you know something. And they're like, well, Lee, we can't just talk to him about you know games that he played. <laughs> we have to, we have to do something a bit more engaging. But uh, you know, that's that's something that I'll, I'm happy I'm happy to sort of 
own that, uh, you know, I, I'd be happy to talk to these guys just about their career and, and um, you know, things that, things, things that I remember and see how well they remember them. Well, hey, on that uh, on that front, you know, I'm looking at this 1987 NBA All-Star Game box score. And so for people who uh, aren't as familiar as Lee with that game, which is the entire world, uh, some of the guys who played Magic Johnson, Tom Chambers, James Worthy, Hakeem Olajuwon, Alvin Robertson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, late career Kareem. Uh, in the East, you've got Moses Malone, Larry Bird, Dr. J, Michael Jordan. Uh, Dominique Wilkins, Kevin McHale, who you mentioned earlier, Isaiah Thomas, who you mentioned earlier, Charles Barkley. I mean, this is a laundry list, basically, of Hall of Famers. But my question uh, to you, and because I know you study this stuff, uh, when you look at the NBA now, 2017, pace and space, everybody wants to be like the Warriors. The centers are shrinking. Everybody's taking more three-pointers than ever. It's all about the quick ball movement. When you look back on those 80s greats, uh, or even the guys into the 90s, I think my sweet spot was more like early to mid-90s. I think yours is kind of that late 80s. Uh, How many of those guys do you think could still be Hall of Famers if they had to play their uh, careers in the modern NBA? I mean, which of the guys jumped to mind to you as like no-brainer Hall of Famers? And then which of maybe the the real superstars do you think would have struggled to make the transition? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, obviously Jordan and Magic and Larry. I, I don't think those guys, I think their skills and their abilities transcends across any era you know Larry obviously wasn't the most athletic player at the end of his career but still it was just an incredibly uh, talented player who was able to adapt to play the game with the body that was falling down and you know breaking down in those last couple of years so I think those sort of guys are fine personally I think someone like Akeem Olajuwon as well would still be a star in today's game Uh, just an incredibly dominant player at both ends of the floor could, you know, in my mind, probably the best defender we've ever had in the NBA, just his ability to block shots and to def- to to intimidate opponents as well. You know, I mean, he he's the all-time leader in block shots, but he's probably doubled that for a, a amount of shots that he's never had to block because guys wouldn't go up against him. So I think guys like him, Kareem, obviously as well. I mean, he he was a star, and you know that that the sky hook is something that's never been replicated, and he was totally dominant. Um. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if someone like Dominique Wilkins would be as as revered as well as he is now if he, if he played in the current game. I'm, I'm not sure because he was athletic and uh, you know incredibly uh, good at you know the dunks and stuff. But he wasn't a great shooter of the ball. I wouldn't think either. Um, you know, um, so I'm not sure if the game would sort of have been as kind to him now, being uh, you know having to be a sort of guy who could, who could knock down a three pointer. He wasn't a great three point shooter. Um, and, you know, someone like Bill Lane Beer is an interesting one as well because if you look at the way the modern game is now, as you mentioned, you know, big men are all stepping back, knocking down three-pointers. But Bill Lane Beer was one of the first to do that. And he was, a, a, I believe, a four-time All-Star as well. So he was a very, very good player, even though he's probably one of the most despised in the history of the league because everyone hated playing against him. But he was kind of a front-runner as well. like he, uh, Not a front-runner, but a... Uh, uh, like a leader, I guess, in, in that respect, that he, he understood to make himself valuable, it was important that he played defense, but he had to find a way to make himself a, a, a decent three-point shooter. Now, he, you know, he, by, by today's standards, he barely shot the three-pointer, but, um, you know, he's someone who, who at least saw that he could offer something to his team that they, that they needed and it helped out. So, um, you know, I, I don't know, because, again, he wasn't super athletic if, if his style of play would be as effective now but, um, you know, certainly someone who, who sort of, I guess, saw the game 
developing perhaps into a into you know needing to shoot the three pointer. Um, yeah, so it, it's hard because you certainly don't want to you don't want to you know disrespect anyone who's a you know a hall of famer and they just just because of the year that they played in that they wouldn't be able to play in it now. But I guess uh, I guess the athleticism as well of guys now stands out a lot more. I mean. You, you, you think of LeBron James at six foot eight, and he basically is a point guard who can play power forward and centre. Which is, if you had the equivalent at the time, someone like Karl Malone, if he was a point guard who could play centre and 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 could throw the ball down like LeBron and shoot three pointers. I mean, you just you wouldn't believe that a guy could develop into a, a playmaker like that and to be an all round talent like that. But that's basically what LeBron has become. So, you know, someone like Karl Malone, you know. Very, very hard to defend, and, and you know, uh, second all time in points because of his ability to use his body, get to the free throw line, and score the ball. But you know, would that be as uh, as in demand these days? Would that you know, would coaches and teams seek out a guy who doesn't really spread the floor, but he can just use his, his size to score a lot of points? But of course, we know now that uh, teams value the three pointer so much more than just getting two pointers and getting to the free throw line. So. You know, he, it, it's very hard. It's very hard to sort of say, well, this guy just wouldn't have been able to make it because if he'd grown up in this era, maybe Carmelone can shoot a three-pointer. Maybe yeah. he, you know, I was just I was just going to say instead of instead of the pick and pop at fifteen to eighteen, I think he's just popping out to that uh, that angle three, and he's you know Stockton's just feeding him on those shots all day long, and he's he's knocking down the threes. Or, yeah. or a guy like Larry Bird, instead of uh, you know a couple threes a game, he's he's probably being encouraged to take eight or nine threes. I mean, it, it seems like with some of these legends the modern game actually maybe could have enhanced their stats or enhanced their profile if they had grown up playing that way, like you're saying. Well, exactly. I mean, you're, you're right. If Larry Bird shot, you know, as many threes a game as Clay Thompson does, he, you know, Larry Bird may be one of the all-time leading scorers, you know, because he would have just knocked down more threes. But, of course, back then, it just wasn't regarded uh, as, as the weapon it is right now. And, I mean, weapon's probably not even the right way to t- describe it right now because it's, everyone shoots it. And, I mean, as soon as the ball's tipped off, teams are just bombing away, you know, like the Rockets. Basically, as we know, they they either shoot a three-pointer or they're trying to drive it into the paint. The, the mid-range game just no longer exists for them. So, um, you know, but, but like, if, if Carl Malone, someone like him, I mean, with John Stockton as well, who they just had such, in great, uh, such incredible chemistry, I'm sure they would have figured out a way to get him plenty of looks and still getting him, you know, rolling to the hoop and scoring. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it's hard to sort of say that obviously a guy like that wouldn't have worked in, in today's era, but, um, you know, someone who was so powerful and so dominant and, and, and so consistent as well, Carl Malone, you know, talk about an Iron Man. He uh, he barely missed any games throughout his career. He took incredible uh, incredible care of his body, and uh, you know that's why he was able to score so many points. And, and you know, a very physical player as well. So he took a, a, a pounding, and he certainly gave out a, a fair bit of treatment as well on the defensive end. But um, you know, the game. I'm not sure who the modern day equivalent of a, of a guy like that would be right now. Uh, just off the top of my head, I mean. Maybe maybe it was sort of Kevin Love a few years ago, but but even that doesn't really seem to, you know, sort of translate all that well. But um, you know, Carl Carl just happened to play in an era where he was able to really utilise his uh, skills and his advantages, and uh, you know, become a an incredible player and a Hall of Famer. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we're running short on time, so I wanted to help you, have you clear up a, a controversy that I've gotten in with Australia a few years ago. Now, back in 2014. Uh, Australia was in uh, the FIBA World Cup and they had a game against Angola 
Now, there was, I guess, some seeding uh, at stake. It was sort of the last game of the group round where, you know, if Australia lost, it was going to be more beneficial for them. Uh, so they get into this really weird game where the second half just becomes this dunk parade for this Angolan team that wasn't very good. And uh, all of a sudden, Australia's offense becomes, uh, you know, very perimeter oriented. They're not really driving to the hoop. And so I put together some clips from that game and I put it up and you know, actually some NBA players who were watching the game kind of accused Australia of, of potentially tanking that game for the seeding. And it led to an investigation uh, eventually Australia was cleared of not tanking, but Andrew Gaze, who you mentioned earlier, Australian basketball legend, he was sending some Twitter shots at me for, you know, accusing Australia potentially of tanking. I'm wondering, do you remember this whole controversy back in, uh, in 2014? And did Australia play that game fairly? If you do remember it, uh, or were they, were they trying to play it kind of like, uh, you know, in some of these other sports, whether it's soccer or, uh, whether it's badminton, I mean, there's been these other tanking controversies. I mean, do you remember what I'm talking about here? Yeah, I, I do. Australia tanked for sure. There's no thank you. That game. Uh, I, yeah, I, I remember watching it, and and, and you know, the, you, as you mentioned, their offense was just awful, and Angola just seemed to just stroll into the paint and score. And you know, the thing is, it, it, it's funny when you see it. Like to me, it was obvious. It was pretty clear that that's what's happening. But people get outraged by it. But you know, across every sport. Uh, at some level, we've we've all seen it. We've seen it in the NBA. You know, I know that uh, the, the NBA certainly doesn't like to uh, advertise that it's happened, and it probably hasn't happened as much in in the last couple of years, I guess. But we know that teams tank. You know, they do that uh, because they want to improve a position. And when you're talking about a World Championships, Australia wanted to avoid America, I believe, is uh, is, is what it was. I mean, that that probably is the only team that really makes sense that you want to avoid. Um, but that happens, you know, and, 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 and you know, Australia obviously not going to come out and say, oh, yeah, we, we tanked because then that looks bad. But at the same time, you, you sort of, you can watch that game and you just go, well, we know that you clearly weren't trying as hard as you could because if you had, you would have defended better, you would have shot the ball differently and you would have just taken better shots. So, you know, it happened. And um, I, I don't, you know, I know that there's always going to be two two sides to an argument like that. So, no, 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 we try. We just we had a bad day and the shots weren't falling and that happens. But uh, that that was a, a pretty weak uh, defence by Australia to say that uh, that they didn't tank that game. That was that was pretty clear. If you've watched as much basketball as uh, you know you you and me and a lot of guys have and a lot of people have throughout their lives, you can pretty you can pretty much tell when a team's trying to lose and uh, and that's what Australia was trying to do that day. Well, I feel very validated. Australian basketball legend Andrew Gaze. I have my own Australian basketball legend Lee Ellis backing me up here finally in this uh, in this debate. So this this feels excellent. Uh, hey Lee, uh, before we go real quick, tell people where they can find your work and and you know go ahead and, and plug what you're doing on Twitter and what you maybe have come up uh, coming up here. Uh, for the new NBA season? Yeah, well, uh, NBA TV is where we have the show five nights a week, Monday to Friday during the season. Uh, our first show, our preseason show, is usually early October with the season starting a little early this year. We, we haven't actually got a date uh, knocked out just yet, but uh, look for that. It'll be very, very uh, early in October. Uh, we also have the Twitter show, which is uh, Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Eastern, uh, excuse me, uh, 11 a.m. Eastern time. 
that's uh, that's live on Twitter. And that's, that's a little bit of a different show that we do, but we did it last season. It was a lot of fun. We all enjoyed that, where we, we talk about basketball. We also sort of go off the rails a little bit and talk about a few other things, and we really encourage uh, viewer participation because it, it's on Twitter, so you just have to get onto Twitter and you can watch it. So that's uh, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. And then we also have the, uh, the Drop podcast, which is our Friday audio-only podcast, that, that that's pre-recorded. Usually gets up around sort of noon, 1 p.m. Eastern uh, every Friday, and that's also heavily heavily into basketball. But we also uh, go off on a few different tangents from time to time and talk about a few other things. So that's uh, that's where you can find the show. I'm, my my Twitter handle is just my name, uh, Lee Ellis, L E I G H E L L I S. You can follow me there if uh, if you want to see what I have to tweet. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, we we uh, we sort of haven't really got together and started talking about uh, next season yet. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's early August uh, or mid August, I guess, while we're recording this, and we've been off since the end of summer league, and, and most of us has kind of gone off in our own different directions and uh, gotten away gotten away from each other. When you spend uh, <laughs> months in each other's close proximity to each other, the first month you get off, you tend to you tend to try to find other people to talk to, and, and mm-hmm. you don't want to talk about basketball for that first month. But We'll, we'll get together probably in the next couple of weeks and start uh, discussing a few ideas about uh, what we're going to do this season because we always like to try to keep things fresh and try to keep things new and exciting. And, um, you know, that's that's the challenge that we face every year is to, is to hope that people still find us entertaining and uh, informing and, and people still like to follow along. So that's uh, that's kind of where we stand right now. And uh, as I say, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely be back on um, in October. So follow our Facebook, the starters uh, on Facebook and, and our Twitter handle and, uh, and Instagram as well. That's where we'll have all that information uh, when, we, when we've figured it all out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lee. Say hi to Skeets, Taz, Trey, all those guys for me. I've been a fan since they were shooting, uh, I guess, in Skeets' apartment uh, you know, billiards room. So, I mean, it's it's been awesome to see you guys rise up and, and take over NBA TV. And, uh, again, thanks so much for the conversation, all the information about Australia's uh, love affair with basketball. Uh, I'm sure our listeners uh, really appreciated that. Uh, thanks again, Lee. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me, man. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.